We got a good one tonight, if I don't mess it up. Isaiah chapter 36. Satan speaks. That's the name of this message. Uh, it could have been the devil talks, the voice of the devil, the voice of Satan. I chose Satan because that means adversary, and the Assyrian army that show up, of course, is the adversary of the Jewish people. Very fitting to go with that. Just to give a little coming attraction to what we're going to look at in chapter 36, look at verses 4 and 5, and you tell me if the, this isn't the voice of the devil. <clears throat> then Rebshekah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and powerful war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Satan speaks, and he's speaking through Rebshekah. Everything he said to the Jewish people in this section is what he has been saying to believers ever since. But first, some background on what's going on here, because this is Isaiah's interlude between his prophecies to the Jewish people and the surrounding nations at, during the rule of Assyria. This begins his uh, presentation of the fall of Assyria, which you will not see in his lifetime, but he got to prophesy of it in his lifetime. And this is a, this, how this all ends in the next chapter for Assyria is, is astounding. After chapter 39, we then go into the Messianic prophecies. It has a whole different feel to it than the first 35 chapters. But these four chapters, 36 to 39, are about this time in history when the Assyrians had, for the last time, come into Judah, come up, and they had now come up to the gates of Jerusalem, and they will be defeated by God. The significance of King Hezekiah's reign with Isaiah's influence is that Judah did not fall as Samaria did. And that's big because here you have this duo. You have a king who cooperated with his prophet. You have a prophet that loved his king. And the two of them, in spite of all of the apostates that were still in Jerusalem, they prevailed. Jeremiah, again, as I've been mentioning throughout, he will not have this... The, the satisfaction of seeing Jerusalem prevail. He will see it be completely destroyed, and he will lament over it in the lamentation of Jeremiah. Now, Assyria's conquest of Judah, again, makes it up <clears throat> right to the walls of the city. But God drew a line there. And as the Bible says of the sea, when God put the sea, the, the oceans of the world, he said, you may come this far and no further. The boundaries were set because God is sovereign. Now, added to Hezekiah's problem during this invasion is that he becomes terminally ill. He cries out to God. We'll get that in chapter 38. He cries out to God. And uh, he will be delivered from the Assyrian threat and the illness. He will get 15 years added to his life. Now, in Isaiah 38, we get a little glimpse of all this. He said, And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go tell Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days fifteen years. 
I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. How that must have just been such an encouragement to this man on his deathbed for God to say, all right, I'm going to heal you from this one, and I'm going to beat back the Assyrian threat. And so this interlude of Isaiah, spelling out the beginning of the end of Assyria, which in their lifetime would have seemed impossible. They were invincible until God again intervened. Years earlier, Hezekiah had paid tribute to Assyria to keep them out of Jerusalem. He caved in. Now, you can't blame him. There's an army coming and he's standing up to them and then all of a sudden he realizes how grave this threat is and he buys them off. And it doesn't work. He appeases them, and, and they a few years later they will come back. And I'm going to go over this, uh, the chronology of how things appear to have taken place. Three sections of Scripture and one historical document of, of the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, uh, talk about this event. And if the Bible gives three, cha- uh, three sections of Scripture in Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah... There are lessons that must abound for us. And one of them is learning to identify the speech of the devil. Because if you don't, it will be worse for you and those around you. The opportunities that could alone that would be lost by not having that spiritual discernment. Well, uh, the sequence of events recorded in Scripture about this event is not in chronological order. You had a lot of work to get it. It spans over tw- about 20 years. Uh, just the Assyrians besieging and defeating the northern kingdom. And then, uh, and, and of course, taking them all away and assimilating them into different lands. And that was the end of Samaria and the northern kingdom. But had Judah remained. Hezekiah stopped paying Assyria. Assyria responds with an army. Hezekiah caves. Hezekiah gets very sick. He, uh, of course, recovers. The, uh, he, the threat of the Assyrians was just all over the place. Babylonians come and visit him. That really raises the ire of Assyria. And then they really come into Jerusalem or into Judah and ultimately Jerusalem. And then God will destroy that army, that Assyrian army. So that's an overview of what's going to happen. This story is in other places I mentioned, except for when you get to chapter 38, Hezekiah writes a psalm to celebrate the healing that God put on his life. And it is the only place in the Bible that it shows up. We are about, this chapter, about 700 years before the virgin birth of Christ. And here this righteous king facing the invasion of the savage, and they were savages when it came to war, They were quite civilized otherwise, it seems. Uh, uh, This uh, great king has many lessons for us. And so we go right now to verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up to Jerusalem, all the fortified cities of Judah, and took them. It's a summary, really the first chapter of Isaiah, summarizing what's going on. He is the 13th king of Judah, after Solomon, and a great man of God, so much for the silly superstition that 13 is somehow an evil omen. 
because here he is the 13th, and he was a great man of God, and we, we'll, we, we see that in, in so much of what he did. And in fact, he even gives us uh, a, a proverbs that, that seemingly were lost, and we have them show up in the book of Proverbs that Hezekiah preserved for us. Anyway, Sennacherib, it says, king of Assyria. Now, Sennacherib wanted to make everyone in his reach subject to him, as does Satan. He even tried, Satan did, to get the Son of God to subject himself to him. And, of course, we, we read that and we'll just take it in Luke. It's also in Matthew. Therefore, Satan speaking to Jesus, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. You, I, will, I will enrich you. You'll be better off if you just bow down to me. Satan wants it so much he can't have it. Remember that the next time you're under attack, that he tries to get you to submit to him. Satan is irreparably brazen and harmful and doomed. He will not be saved. He is a spiritual being, not a human being. He is a created being. He is not a self-created God. When the Bible refers to him as the God of this world, it's sort of a smirk that belongs to that. He's the one who pulls the strings of the puppets of the earth who refuse the lordship of the only true God. Well, uh, looking again at verse 1, he says, <clears throat> They came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Wait a minute. The invader is succeeding in the promised land. These cities were fortified against invaders and it wasn't working. Their readiness to defend themselves failed because they rejected God. They were apostates. No, not that. There was always, always a remnant, but these were those who turned from God and never really acknowledged it. Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry, he invested himself in outreach to idolaters. That's what those first 35 chapters are about him reaching out, saying, don't go to Egypt. Judgment will come even to Assyria. And he would just, you know, this nation's going to be judged. And God wants, the first chapter of Isaiah lays it all out, what was happening with the people. Donkeys know to whom they belong. But my people, they can't figure this out. It's a powerful first chapter, and it's been appropriate in every age of mankind. In verse 2, he continues, he says, Then the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct, aqueduct <clears throat> the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. The very Fuller's Field, where... Thirty years ago about, Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah's wicked father Ahaz. He said, God wants to bless. Don't give in to these Assyrians. Well, Hezekiah, I mean Ahaz, sorry. He refused the Lord. and Instead, he made a treaty with Assyria. God, good, that's doing right now. As they're invading the land, the Assyrians were ready to take Jerusalem. And... Uh, Isaiah was trying to help Ahaz to stand in the faith, and Ahaz wanted no part of it. Now, according to 2 Kings, that also tells this story, Sennacherib sends three high-ranking officials to 
accept and arrange the surrender of Jerusalem. He sent the Tartan, who was the supreme commander. These are not proper names, personal names. These are titles. Rabsaris, who is another a chief officer of King Sennacherib, because he had a tremendous army. Even when he loses 180,000, 185,000 troops, he still has an incredible army left, just not uh, in Israel. And then there's Rabshakeh, who likely is a field commander. He may be some other political figure also, but we're going to approach it as though he's the commander in the field. Now, Lachish is about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, so that's where they're coming from, verse 3. We haven't even really heated up this up yet. Verse 3, And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So these are the envoys sent by Hezekiah. Uh, Eliakim was very faithful. He is promoted over Shebna, who was demoted by God because of Shebna's Self-serving pride. There's a lesson there to watch your pride because God is watching. Verse 4, the Reb Shekah said to him, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? He opens with an insult. It is an insult of omission. Rudely omitting the title of king to Hezekiah. And he will not call him king throughout the exchange. Or he'll call Sennacherib king of Assyria. But he will not give the satisfaction to the Jews of recognizing Hezekiah as king. And this is the voice of the devil. And it will, you'll see it as we pass through it. He says, what confidence is this in which you trust? Now, Hezekiah commanded these men, we find that in verse 21, don't say anything to him. Listen to what he has to say and bring it back to me. It was wise advice. And the one time that they say something, it backfired. But they, they don't say any more after that. We'll come to it, too. Spiritually, however, we are to be ready when, to, for this question when someone says, what confidence is this in which you trust? First Peter, we know this one. Sanctify, set aside as holy the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the word that is in you. That's the Greek. It's, we, we, we translate it a reason for your hope. That word translated reason is logos. So uh, to everyone, a word for the hope that is in you with meekness and respect. See, the apostles viewed the word as, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. They never separated that metaphor from that reality. It was concrete and it was abstract at the same time because it was divine. In this beginning of this, his rude opening words and omission of word, Rabshakeh is a type of Satan. We are hearing Satan speak. The devil is talking to them. Now, of course, the envoys, they just see him as an obnoxious ruler, but the Holy Spirit says, hmm, who does this remind you of when you start listening to what his words and, and observing Reb Shekha's behavior? Attempting to undermine faith right from the beginning. Well, that's a signature move of the devil. That's what he did to Eve, and it worked. This is the voice 
to all believers through the ages who have set themselves to serve Jesus. He sometimes speaks in a tone of a reasonable devil. He's going to pull that stunt. He's going to give them statistics. And they're supposed to go, ooh, ooh. well, never mind God, you got the stats. They're not going to fall for it. Human reason grants no permission to God to be God on God's terms. He can be God on their terms, which is the meaning of idolatry. Human reason furiously opposes the Bible as God's word to man, and we furiously counter that with, we don't agree with you. In fact, there's a consequence for you not agreeing with us. What do you got? What you got? <laughs> what is the consequence of me believing the, uh, not believing the world? Well, persecution, but you can get that even if you're not a Christian. Anyway, everything Rabshakeh says and the way he says it proves that Satan speaks and that Satan is the author, the author of destroying faith by using words. Because that's what Rabshakeh is using. He's got this big army in back of him too. All mankind gets to hear the devil's words. All mankind gets to see the devil's works. Every time you drive by a cemetery, you are seeing the works of the devil. It goes all the way back to Eden. And surely if you eat of this tree, you're not going to die. Well, a cemetery is, disagrees with that. Verse 5, I say, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now he knows they trust Yahweh. He also knows there's an element in Judah that is trusting Egypt. He's going to deal with both of them, Rebshekah is. He's going to use a little bit of the truth to force along his lie, the uh, tour of destruction that he is on, on. So we come to Christ. We begin our walk with great ambition to serve the Lord, to be obedient to him. Peter had this ambition Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And of course, Peter stumbled. Peter was told by, by, at that moment, the Lord didn't give that a pass. He dealt with it right on the spot. Before the rooster crows three times, Peter, you're going to deny me. And here, what we're looking at, when Reb Shekha, or you could say Satan, says to us, You speak of plans for war. And power. You talk about serving Christ. You talk about never caving in. You, you talk about not stumbling. And then we encounter that violent spiritual war. Whether it is in the enemy inside or the enemy outside. Whether it's external or internal. Uh, the flesh, the world, the Satan. We have to deal with all of them. This is what makes the cross of Christ so amazing. That, yeah, we can have our plans of war and powerful war and fail and yet still be on the winning side. We'll still be useful to Christ in spite of our shortcomings. I like, again, Romans, I think I quoted it Sunday, Romans uh, 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors. And, and so there's the devil's lie. You talk about fighting a war. You can't fight a war. And yet we're whooping him 
when we remain in the faith and we preach Christ in spite of our fallings. What, how did Judah say? He who is able to... Jude, not... Well, Judah. Jude means a Gentile form of Judah. He who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, dominion, power, and majesty forever. So we come back to Isaiah 36, verse 5. And he says, I say, you speak of having plans for war and power, but they're just words, mere words. Talk is cheap. Well, we know that. This is what Satan said about Job. And Job was the winner. Where is Job now, and where will Satan be later? So Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. You can hear it. And Job never did. He came up close to it, though. But he backed away. He did not do it. They were not just words. When, when Job said, though he slay me, I will trust him. When he said, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He backed up his, his pledge of faith. He told God, he said, I'm not going to pretend. I'm not giving up my integrity. I'm telling you, God, I don't like what's happening to me. And you, you have to just admire him for that. Anyway... He continues, Rabshakeh does, now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? This is his speech is Satan's speech. It is a masterpiece of propaganda from a serious point of view, psychological warfare. Discrediting the faith of believers, sowing seeds of doubt in the minds of believer and would-be believer as well. Unbelievers. The key word that he uses here, and he uses it seven times in this chapter, is trust. But he's using it as a, he's militarizing the word against trusting God. He wants them to trust in nobody, just save their skin. That's all they got to do. And he'll, he's going to come out and say that. Because Satan is, gonna, is brazen enough to say, you're too stupid to not get what I'm saying to you. So I'm going to come out and tell you. There's nothing you can do about it. We'll come to that. Well, anyway, uh, coming back to this, uh, the Rabshakeh targeting Judah's believers and the apostates. In verse 6, he's going to go at those who are looking for Egypt to come help save them, send military aid from Egypt to help save them. Uh, from from Assyria. Of course, that never happens. So Reb Shaka is going to bring that up. And then in verse 7, he's going to go at those who trust in, in Yahweh. Satan treats believers as runaway slaves. He is determined to re-enslave us. And if he cannot re-enslave us, he'll be satisfied with just making us miserable in our freedom in Christ. That's what he does. And if you don't learn that, you can, you, you can diminish your witness. It can hurt your prayer life. Faith in rhythm with God has a defiant response to this kind of stuff. 
It is always ready to defy back. It is looking for that, that shot. It's determined to side with God no matter what. No matter how you feel, no matter how the outlook may look, you're still looking to serve the Lord. And Satan can't stand it, but we see it happening even in Israel. Well, actually in Babylon, uh, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, when the king said, you're going to either bow down to me or you're going to cook. I'm going to cook you alive. You, you know, you, you remember, you know, we've seen people jump out of skyscrapers and off of these giant windmills to escape fire. There's one uh, of those windmills that caught on fire and the inspector was on top of this thing 360 feet in the air. He dove off. He was probably actually reached maximum uh, terminal velocity, probably passed out before he hit the ground. But my point is fire threatens somebody and we're going to burn you alive. It's serious. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar said these men. We have no need to answer you in this matter. You can, you can see them. I don't, I don't know. I don't think their hands were on their hips. But I would like it to be. That just, uh, you know, the carnal flair. Anyway, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that be the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you. O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And all the people were going, ooh. And of course, he is enraged by this defiance. And in that case, they prevailed magnificently. Not even the smell of smoke was on them when they were put in the furnace. But that's not always the case. Many a man and woman have gone to the stake to be burned alive for Jesus Christ. Oh, people have gone to stakes for other reasons too, burned alive. <clears throat> but it doesn't count. So believers, as believers, you can take our Jerusalem, we get a new one. <clears throat> you can take our life, we get an eternal one. None of these things should move us. As Paul said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my ministry with joy. Verse 6, look, Rabshakeh is still talking. You are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Oh, Pharaoh gets to be called king. does not Hezekiah. Well, here's the part I said he's first going to target uh, the, the apostates, because he's looking to break morale wherever he can. They don't want to, to cross swords. They want the Jews to surrender. And if they don't, then they hope to starve them to death. And but they're going to get the city anyway, is their, their thinking. Uh, Satan has got this persistent determination also. So he singles out those trusting in, the, in, in Egypt's military. He said, you're going to get hurt doing that. Isaiah had already published, made public, his prophecies on this whole thing. And Isaiah 30 and 31, for example, he just slams this idea of going to Egypt for help. So Rabshakeh is not bringing anything new to the table. But <clears throat> that doesn't mean it's, it's not 
causing fear. It continues, he does. He says, on which if a man leads it will go through his hand, harmed by trusting Egypt. And he says, so is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. Many of Satan's speeches have an element of truth in them. And that's what we have to learn. They're half-truths, which means they're not true. And it's very helpful for him in deceiving human beings. So Paul writes, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. We know what he does. Yes, Egypt was unable to rescue Jerusalem. Well, Isaiah already said it. So Rebshekah, Satan, you're not helping uh, uh, you, you, you know, you're not hurting us with that. Yes, we'll get this in verse 7. The Lord has called the Assyrians to uh, be an instrument against the apostates in Israel. But he also has drawn a line. You will come to the neck, but you won't get to the head, and that is Jerusalem. Satan factored out the prayers of the righteous king Hezekiah and the ministry of Isaiah, and Isaiah's wife, for example, we talk about the remnant. Isaiah's wife was called a prophetess, and so, and you know she had friends, and you know they prayed. He, Satan didn't factor that out, and he left out the fullness of the prophet's prophecies when he begins to throw into the face of these envoys uh, what was going on. Uh, we'll come to the more. Anyway, verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh, our God, Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He's trying to to portray Hezekiah as a tyrant uh, when Hezekiah is a faithful servant purging the land. So it's, it's pathetic when unbelievers attempt Bible teaching. It doesn't stop them. There are universities that order courses on the Bible. And I like to say, you know, I, 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 I don't teach, you know, physics from the pulpit. I don't think they should teach the Bible from the universities. Leave it to the churches. No, but they're invasive. They want to claim everything. You're nobody until they say you're somebody. That's how they think. We say you're doomed until you repent. Matthew 27. This is what they said of Christ. Remember, he says, but if you say to me, we trust Yahweh our God. Well, they said this of Christ while he was on the cross. He trusted in God. These were religious people. These were the Bible teachers of Israel. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Well, what if he was right? That's Matthew 27, verse 43. So the question is, what does one who rejects the God of the Bible know about the words of the Bible of God? They're disqualified. Unfortunately, many people requalify them. Follow them, listen to them. Repeat what they have to say. Become their disciples in churches and out of churches. 2 Corinthians 11. But what I do... I will also continue to do. You just got to love when Paul stands up to his opponents. He says that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So they were those frauds. And Paul said, I'm not going to back down from them. They want to steal our thunder and they're not going to get it. 
And he continues, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Man, you know, you could tell when Paul was writing that he was hot spiritually. He called it in, in second, he'll continue in that same chapter. He says, And do I not burn with indignation? What Satan gets away with of what the curse has done to humanity. So here the enemy, confused and lying, a combination thereof, which is not doesn't bother him because he has no shame. He's not accountable to anything except results, his results. Here he is, uh, you know, bad-mouthing the reformers, Hezekiah and Isaiah and the righteous remnant who are trying to get Israel back on course by get, purging the land of these false centers of worship. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, Jesus said to Satan, Jesus quoting scripture. Well, Hezekiah and, and Isaiah are doing that to, to, uh, to the, the, the apostates in the land. You're to worship in Jerusalem, the God of heaven, and nobody else, and nowhere else, with the blood sacrifices. So again, consistent with Satan, who is always lying. And when he's telling the truth, it is only to set up a lie. And you better learn that early. Hezekiah doing right and being accused, being accused of doing wrong. Well, that's typical Satan. Verse 8. And therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part to put riders on them. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course you urge us. Uh, bow down is what he's saying. <clears throat> give a pledge to my master. Jesus, again, to Satan, and he said to him, all these things, Satan speaking, uh, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Early I read from Luke, this one's Matthew. And he continues here in verse 8, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. So he's voicing his contempt. He can't help himself. This is who he is. He doesn't respect anybody except his people. Yeah, I'll give you 1,000 tanks if you can find people smart enough to drive them kind of a thing. Verse, verse 9, and then, and then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? <laughs> the Jebusites hurled similar insults at David. They did not live to regret it. They died before they got that far. Second Samuel and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. So there's a story of how Jerusalem became the city of David and how God anointed Jerusalem. And continues, uh, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. Thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So the historian says, yeah, yeah, let's leave out the details. Here's the fact. It's David's city now. And, and so they were saying, you're all blind and all lame. And so here's, here's Rabshakeh saying, you know, the least of our military commanders can just, you know, take you. And, and yeah, uh, 185,000 men later. Incidentally, we, at, when the 185,000 are slain, we don't read about Rabshakeh. He probably did not survive. He probably was one of them. Anyway, verse 10, have, have I now come up without the Lord, without Yahweh, against this land to destroy it? 
Yahweh said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So he's lying through his teeth. We didn't care. You know, we have politicians. They don't care if you catch them in a lie. That's just no shame. You cannot appeal to their sense of honor or dignity. Because with the wicked, as Zephaniah says, there is no shame. Well, it was already public knowledge that God would use the Assyrians as his instrument, as I mentioned before, to punish his people. It's in Isaiah 8, it's in Isaiah 10, it's in Isaiah 30 and 31. It's just many times. We were reading this, you know, the judgments against Assyria, and we're going, oh, this is so boring. Well, for the Jews, it was everything when it comes to this point. You either trusted the prophet Isaiah and his prophecies on, on Assyria, or you sided with the apostates. So this statement is partially true. God did, in one sense, use the Assyrians as an instrument of judgment, but they were not free to be as malicious and vicious as they wanted and do anything that they wanted. They could not take Jerusalem. Isaiah 8.8, here's part of the prophecy. He will pass through Judah, and he did when he took the fortified cities. He will overthrow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and that's as far as he goes. And that's what's happening here at the gates of Jerusalem. God disowned the apostates, but rescued the remnant amongst the apostates from this Assyrian onslaught. And it says here in verse 10 at the bottom, The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So he's lying again. Isaiah already called us. Isaiah 10 verses 5 and 6, for example, is one of many places Assyria had their spies out. They knew what was happening. They knew what Isaiah was preaching. Uh, as it will be in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, they knew what Jeremiah was doing, what he was saying. That's why when they finally capture, when, when they come into the land, they're so nice to Jeremiah because they knew Jeremiah was telling the kings, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so we have no reason to doubt. The Assyrians knew what was happening there. But here this Rabshakeh, he is an arrogant, foul-mouthed, blasphemous liar, with a defective theology. And it goes beyond that. His facts are fragmented. But he doesn't care. He does now. It's too late. And as, as Satan, uh, he loves twisting the meanings of God's words. And why do so many churchgoers not get that? Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You who will be going into the workplace and into the universities. Let no one deceive you. No one means no one with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul said, they're going to pay for this. You are either going to side with those apostates in Jerusalem that thought the, Assyrian, the Egyptians would rescue them, or you're going to side with those who trusted God no matter what. You're either going to stand up to the fiery furnace and say, God can save us from this. We're not bowing down to you. And if he, even if he doesn't save it, we're not bowing down to you. We bow down to him. Verse 11, Then Eliakim Shebna Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Well, there were those that were manning the wall. They were protecting their envoys as best they could. And they were listening, or were trying to listen. They were in earshot, or arrow shot at least. And the, and the Aramaic seems to have been the language of, of treaty and, and trade in the ancient world. It was like a pig Latin in, a, in 
African mines or in airports. All the airports all around the world use English. So it was a, a standard language. What the Hebrews are, uh, are saying to Reb Sheka is, can you tone it down? We don't want our troops to hear. Well, this is a, you know, a, a, a diplomatic exchange. It's not for them. Well, that backfired. You can't reason with Satan and expect to have success. It's hard enough reasoning with good people sometimes. Then you imagine with Satan. Well, verse 12, here's where it backfires. Reb Shekha said, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak to these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So um, we've got a lot to say about this. Satan expands his filthy speech by warning the Jews of an inevitable, slow and awful death, starvation and death from thirst, if they refuse to surrender. Chronicles rings in on this. Here's, here's what it says about Hezekiah. Does, I mean, Reb Shekha, does Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and thirst? saying, Yahweh our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. That's the voice of Satan. Your pastor's trying to convince you to trust God? Well, you're going to die of starvation and thirst. You're going to miss out. Romans, again, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So persecution or distress, well, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perilous sword. Paul rules out all the big dogs. He says, those things are going to break our faith. But it's more to it here. He's insisting that the men on the wall have a right to hear what Hezekiah is going to get them into. They have a right to hear that Hezekiah is going to get them killed in an awful way. That's, that's what Rabshakeh is saying. Has not my master sent me to speak to you and to those on the wall who are going to die because of Hezekiah? Talking about the famine, he uses foul language. Satan's terror tactics. I don't think we should miss the head games Satan is employing here, because he does it to this day, of course. The New Testament, the New King James softens the language. The Old King James is closer to the literal Hebrew, and I'm not going to even read it. Maybe if you have the Old King James, you can read it yourself. By our standards, the New King James is vulgar language. It's not when it was written. And we shouldn't consider it vulgar, but the standards of today would. So I'll use the English Standard Translation as an alternate, because it's an accurate translation also. He says, doomed with you, the men on the wall, doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. You see the vulgar language Mr. Potty Mouth is using? He's trying to terrorize them into submission. He's showing who he really is. The righteous would pick up on it instantly. The unrighteous, however, would be in turmoil. These are not endorsements, the way that the, the, the Bible words these things. The younger Christians must learn to recognize when Satan speaks, how he conducts business. You must be able to identify the genuine from the counterfeit. And the only way you're going to do that is by handling the genuine enough so that on touch, you can instantly discern, say, this is not right. Something is wrong with it. So, 
He said the Jerusalemites would be forced to consume their own body waste to counter the famine that's coming. This is the devil's speech. And the devil dangles suffering before our eyes to get us to cave in in our faith. You sure you want to stand up for Christ? You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be fired. You're going to be this. You're going to be that. How about I be faithful? How What if Eve had said, wait right here one second, and went and got a big rock and clunked him upside as well. Violence wasn't around then. She wouldn't have thought of that. But... Uh, again, she should not have been in the vicinity. And that alone is a lesson. It's like Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. What's he doing in a vineyard where the lion met him? He's snacking on grapes. You can't tell me. He's just, you know, oh, I just take him to the vineyard. It's a shortcut. <laughs> he was where he wasn't supposed to be, if nothing else. Well, verse 13, Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. See, there's the backfire. They asked him to tone it down. He's going to shout it out with a loud voice now. So potty mouth gets louder. He gets a microphone. Demonstrating again the futility of reasoning with the devil. You don't have to reason with him. We stand firm. We deliver a message. We're, we're not discussing a situation when we preach the gospel to people. We are delivering a message. Here's a telegram for you from God. It says, unless you repent, Luke 13... You will likewise perish. That's the message. Have a nice day. Well, of course, we don't leave it at that. There's so much more. We hope the doors open. Well, we continue to verse 14. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah, he's shouting this out, deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Very Satan-esque, is it not? God can't save you. That's what he's saying. Well, what was the response of the men in Daniel's chapter 3? So... That was their response. Very simple. Even if he doesn't know king, we're not bowing down to you. It ain't happening. Verse 15. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in, the, in Yahweh. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. <laughs> Still refusing to address King Hezekiah as king. Don't let Hezekiah... He's demoting him and he's humiliating him. He is insisting that their faith is useless in the face of real trouble. We have whole pastors like that. We have whole churches. They reduce the pastor to a moral traffic cop. Don't go this way, go that way. This is, okay. this is righteousness, this is sin. But when you've got a real problem, go to the psychologist. Go to the psychiatrist. But don't come to the Bible. We'll even, we'll even pay them to help you out. Because after all, what could a pastor possibly say about your life? You can't see the hair on my neck at the moment. But it is standing up. It is, uh, you know, Lord, may I not have a plank in my eye on this. May it, uh, I don't mean to sound, I mean to treat them like shaman, the shaman that they are. And, and I, I make no apology, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I think it is that important. It is a sacred cow now in this country. Well, you know, they, they're so caring, and people have problems. I mean, nobody denies that they have problems, and no one denies that we're caring too. But it is to the word of God, as Jeremiah said, and if they do not speak according to this word, what wisdom could they possibly have? A little ad lib there.
Verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Again, not calling him king. For thus says king of Assyria. There's a sharp contrast. Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine. And every one of you from his own fig. And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern. You'll have your own wells to drink from. What he's going to get to in a moment is. And then I'm going to take you away. As I did the northern kingdoms. He's going to say that to them. Because he knows they're too stupid. To figure it out. They just want to save their skin. According to him. And so. What he is. What he is saying. Live the good life. Doesn't matter where you end up. Which we know to be hell. And we have people that have sold their soul to the devil. They will not deny themselves. They will live the life of luxury. And they will do it. Paul calls this out in the last days. Men will be lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. It's exactly what's happening here. He says, listen to my kingdom, not yours. The persistent gall of the man. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Listen to the king of Assyria. When Joshua said, if it seems good to you to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. See, Christianity, biblical Christianity, does not jam the gospel or truth down anyone's throat. We, we deliver the message, they make the choice. He says, whether the gods of your fathers, whether the God of your fathers, the gods, plural, served, now here it comes, listen to this, that were on the other side of the river. We have Christians who serve gods that are on the other side of the river. They're not part of the scripture. There are philosophies and teachings that are on the other side. He continues, Joshua does. He says, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. In other words, you want to serve the gods of the people you defeated. Now, you want to get this right. You're now in the promised land. You defeated these people because Yahweh blessed you. And now you want to go worship their gods. He doesn't say it here unless you, you can really look between the lines. Where he says, you can't be that dumb. <laughs> he says, but as for me and my house, we'll serve Yahweh. So simple. Nothing complicated about that. Now we're going to go ahead and have all these, you know. We're just going to serve the Lord according to his word. And that word factors out alternative ideas about God and life. His divine power has given to you all things that pertain to life, said Peter. But Peter was a dumb fisherman. What did he know? Yet scholars come along and study him and just to disagree with him. Anyway, he's enticing them with false peace to save their own skin. Alan Redpath, and he, Alan Redpath has a commentary on Isaiah. It's, it's, it's hard to find. Uh, Anyway, I'm quoting from one from his commentary in this section. He says, "Then the Assyrian came up with an agreement. Satan always wants that, but there can never be any agreement between God and the devil, and for us to attempt it is fatal." Then he also says, "This you know nothing of the wiles of the devil until you are out and out for God and for souls." You really don't face the devil if you're not involved in ministry of some sort. You get just a hard life. Well, so does the unbeliever get that. 
What makes the difference is when you start serving Jesus Christ. And that's when the voice of the devil will really start coming your way. Uh, with all sorts of things. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a guy on an island stranded for 10 years. And finally, had seen no human for 10 years. They, they find him. And they're on the island and they're talking with him. They're rescuing him, of course, taking him off. And he's got these three huts. And he said, what are the huts? He said, well, this is where I live, this one here. Well, what's this one? This is where I worship. Well, what's the third one? That's where I used to worship. I don't go there anymore. <laughs> you see that mindset? It's a joke. But it is practiced every single Sunday in America. Every single Sunday, somebody leaves a good church. And there's no way to stop it. I don't even know why I might talk about it. Verse 17. Until I come and take you away to a land... Like your own, a land, a land of grain, new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. You hear that? Now he gets to it. Captivity for cowardice. Turn on God and I'll make you comfortable somewhere else. He just told him you could have your own vine, your own cisterns. But he doesn't really mean it. It's just like Satan. Just bow down to me. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Till you die. I can't take you any further than that. If we find ourselves leaning towards cowardice, run towards Christ. That's the antidote. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower the righteous run into, and they are safe. The devil, so impudent, impudent enough to share with his victims just how stupid he thinks they are. That's what he's doing here. You want your vineyards? You want your... Just have it. Surrender to me. Until I take you away. And you're so stupid, you're going to buy what I'm telling you. And we see it happen. And it shouldn't happen. Just remain with this in the simplicity of the gospel. Not a simpleton, but in the simplicity of the gospel. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations... To, any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria. Incidentally, in verse 17, he's telling them, look, I'm telling you in such a way that if any of those prophets come back and try to, to encourage you, it ain't going to work. So he's, he's you know, I, I kind of should have pointed that out. Um, verse 17, do not listen to Hezekiah and the king in, in verse 16. And, and so he's, he's, he's trying to just... Prime them, prep them for anybody who might encourage them against his lies. Satan does the same thing. Now remember, when you go back to that church, that pastor's going to try to undo what I'm telling you by telling you about the Bible. Yeah. Verse 18. Um, uh, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you. There, There it is again. Saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered its hand it's land from the hand of the kings of Assyria. So he's trying again to intercept, but he has natural history on his side. He just doesn't have God on his side. And God is the God of natural history also. He is stating statistics. Has any of the others, he's going to name the, the lands that they conquered in the next verse, but before we get to that, let's not bow down to stats. The game has to be played. 
You can't say, boy, this guy, this team, their batting average is higher than yours. Don't even bother playing the game. Let's not believe just anything the lab coats and high hats tell us. We should have learned this at COVID. It just came right to the front. Do worldly scientists lie? I don't mean down to sleep. I mean, do they tell false truths? Of course they do. And they lie big. I'll give you some examples. Evolution. They know it's not possible. They, they, they know it is not possible, but they continue to push it because the alternatives to them is too scary. Climate change. There will be a climate change at the time of death. You will either be hot in hell or no humidity in heaven. It, it, you know, it's going to be a climate change. Diets. How long have they been lying to people about diets? Now, I'm not saying they all don't work, but a lot of them don't. Or else there would be only one. I've never had to diet, so I guess I don't have a right to talk about it. But I'm talking about it. Psychotropic drugs. Uh, you have chemical imbalance. Well, did you take a test of what chemical, incidentally, is imbalanced? How do you measure that? Well, you can't. We just guess. <laughs> we, just, we look at you. You look like you're messed up. Ethics. Do scientists have ethics? We caught them lying about climate change. Big letters came out, how much they were lying. On and on. This is Satan. And the people who continue to go with it, the Bible preaches against this behavior. Verse 19. He continues. Here's his stats. Where are the gods of Hamath? Arphad. Where are the gods of Sepharaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Well, first off, uh, those gods are where they always have been in the imagination of men lying to themselves. They're not real. So this is a false comparison. It is misinformation. It is misapplication of information. Satan doesn't care about that. You can bust him straight out. We, if, if you want to learn, look at political liberalism and you can see people who facts don't matter to them. The only thing that matters is they get what they want at any cost to you. That is the voice. That is the style of Satan. And you say, why don't, why don't people see this? Because it's spiritual. And if you are spiritually blind, you're not going to see it. Well, coming back to this, verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And there it is. Look at the stats. Nobody's been able to beat the Assyrian army. What makes you think your God's going to help you when their gods did not? Look at the statistics. Well, those gods didn't deliver them because they weren't gods. And the cities of Judah you conquered because you were God's instrument. At some point, human reason against God drifts into blasphemy. You find somebody that starts out very polite with why they don't believe the Bible, in, give them a little time, and they will start the blasphemy. They will strike out against Christ because it's the voice of de the devil behind their philosophies. Hezekiah knew why those places were defeated. And he tells us in chapter 37, here we go. Verse 18. Truly Yahweh, the kings of Assyria, have laid waste all the nations and their lands. So he says the stat is right, but not the reasoning. Then he continues, verse 19 of 
Isaiah 37. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands would stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So here's Hezekiah. He's got his theology in place because he got Isaiah as his buddy. And he's submitted to that. And Isaiah is submitted to Hezekiah as king. You're the king. You run the nation. But if you mess with God, I'm going to sit straight. And Isaiah, Hezekiah is like, I'm good with that. That's, they don't come out and we don't have that exchange in print, but that's what it ends up being. And so here Hezekiah is saying, yeah, Assyria wiped out those people because they have false gods. And he got the Jewish cities because they were apostates. But he's not getting Jerusalem. The combatants of Jesus Christ regularly lump him in with all the false gods. And that's what Repshekah is doing here. Oh, Jesus is just like any other system of religion. Yeah. If you go to your grave thinking that, you're going to find out the hard way. Like that outlaw on the cross that wanted no parts of Christ. And that's what he got in the end. No parts of Christ. He's in hell. But the other one went to paradise. To them, Jesus is just another God. And as with the Assyrians, uh, they don't have to worry about him. That's what the Assyrians, we don't have to worry about Yahweh. He's not a real God. He's like any of the other ones. Well, that night, 185,000 of them became bird food. Verse 21, But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. Now that irritated Rabshakeh, because in verse 11, he enjoyed when they, when they spoke. Hey, to hold it down, and he goes louder. Well, they're not saying anything now. They, they've learned the lesson. The king was right. We should just shut our mouths. <laughs> Don't you love it as a parent when you're right, and you just look at your kid and say, I told you. I love it. I gloat. Sometimes I hire mimes to act it out. No, I don't. That would be carnal. I, I don't. I like being right, but I don't like gloating. Uh, unless I'm joking. Anyway, verse 22. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rebshekah. Uh, we're almost done, obviously. Their faith naturally shaken. They probably did not tear their clothes in front of Rabshakeh, but after they got behind the walls, they were hard at work. Verse, uh, look at Isaiah 37, verse 5 through 7. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. They go to Isaiah first, the prophet, with their clothes torn. And Isaiah lays out a prophecy. Ah, don't worry about this guy. God's going to deal with him. And it's just that we're getting a good look at, at righteousness. So turn, leaving those earlier chapters were pretty tough necessary. Now we're getting into uh, boots on the ground Christianity. Let's pray. If the children's workers show up with pitchforks and lanterns at the door, it's because you went long. Our Father, thank you for these lessons. May we take them to heart. And in everything we do, may we look to glorify you according to the scriptures. May it get us home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.